talking today, I'm going to ask Benjamin if, uh, Doctor, you don't mind coming and doing our reading for us. It's from Daniel chapter 3, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, we'll, we'll cover the English as well, but it's always good to just honor the linguistic tongues that are actually present among us. So thank you. We're getting something from Ghana today. Good morning, everyone. Um, today's reading is from Daniel chapter 3, verse 13 to 18. But I read in the Cree language from um, the Ashanti tribe in Ghana. Um, so, um, well, Daniel, Enguma, Edu, Mian, Sankosi, Du, Enkuno. Ewa Ara, Na Nebukadnezar, Bufuye, Na Oshe, Se, Wom Fashadrak, Meshach ne Abednego mranenim. Wadin won by Nebuchadnezzar beside one say Shadrach, Meshach ne Abednego. Eye no crese, mwan sorry, menyame nesika koko, ohoni a medie si hono. Me mamu kwine bium, se mote aben, edruja, senku, senkuba, senku benta, atente bene, and Nyon to de Ahoduoni na Ninjiji Honoa. Na mon cotofom, na mon sorry ohoni a mayeno a na me mo ne asembiara na sempo a wabeto mo ego fono o jare dere nimu precope. Se ebasa a nyame bena obetumi ajimo efri mutumi ase. Sadrak, Meshak, ne Abednego Bua se Ao nana Nebukadnezar. Ye nyi se eho hia se ye yi ye ho anoa wo wenim. Se wotu yen gufu no o jare dere ni mwa. O nyankupon a ye sum no no. Obeji yen yina nana obeji ye fri wotu miase. Na se ebase we nyi yen poa. Nana inti se. Sorry, dear. Yen sorry when you will yame ana sika koko ohonia would ye see hono. Biara. Amen. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Benjamin. I worked out that the word ne means and. <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, ne. Abednego. There we go. Okay. So our series has introduced us to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Ne, Abednego. Uh, these four Jewish men starting out very young in exile, and they're keeping the faith in the face of apparent defeat. They're keeping the faith in the face of what everyone else thought was the overthrow of Yahweh himself. God's kingdom literally ruined on earth. And uh, because that was how people were thinking, the kingdom of Israel uh, was present among us. And there was a sense in which they were right, and there was a sense in which they were going to be so, so very wrong. You see, most Jews were tempted in this time to believe that God had given up. He'd walked away. He wasn't there. He'd abandoned his people. And yet this book shows in both ordinary ways like literally the, 
the, the attitudes people had towards these young men. And in extraordinary supernatural ways, God was more present and more involved than ever. And so we saw like Moses a thousand years before, they kept the faith when the seduction of in the indulgent life in the palace would seduce them with Babylon's power and Babylon's wealth. And then came that remarkable dream in chapter 2, authenticated in supernatural ways that human kingdoms won't last, that a succession of these empires would rise and fall. But instead of human kingdoms, God will establish his kingdom. The God of heaven will establish his kingdom on the earth. And this would happen or begin during the time of the fourth empire. So now we're in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. So that's about as high as Garden City Heights, just opposite uh, uh, the thing. And, and then, you know, one-tenth the width. So it's this giant obelisk or image uh, that he set up. It's made of gold. He set it in the, on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and anybody else who was anyone to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. And so that bunch all assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald, notice the royal language there, Loudly made this proclamation. Nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And as a small incentive, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So, as soon as they heard the sound of the band, all the nations and peoples of every language, sounds a bit like Pentecost gone wrong, falls down, worships the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And at this time, some Chaldeans or astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. And they said, King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the orchestra must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship must be thrown into, the, uh, into a blazing furnace. But, king... There are some Jews who you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. This is terrible. They like in your cabinet. They are your go-to people. And they are counter-revolutionary. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They're ignoring you. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Now, interesting, he doesn't just throw them in the furnace. 
And it's important and it shows the status and the level that they were occupying in his government. Because you, you know, if you defied at that level, it was just instant. So it just shows that they, were, that they weren't sort of like minor officials. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Question. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. We'll get to that little sentence at some point in the next few months. But even if he does not, there's something we want you to know. Your majesty. <laughs> your majesty. <laughs> you love it, eh? Your majesty. We will not serve your gods. We will not serve your gods. We will not worship the image of gold that you have set up. And then King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, Nebednego. And his attitude towards them changed. And we're stopping there. So this story has a startling and immediate reference for us today, right now. We're starting, in a sense, with its application today. And I'm going to need you to concentrate because you're not thinking that there's somebody who's about to throw you into a fiery furnace or a brick kiln nearby. Now, we are facing the heat of culture wars, whether internal to our city or being imported from elsewhere in the globe. And those culture wars are playing out. But our circumstance has some important parallels to what these young men are facing. We face our own pressures to bow to the dictates of culture and to a variety of human ideas and enterprises, and empires. And these pressures may come with the threat of social exclusion, or economic exclusion, or the loss of employment, or the withdrawal of business, or whatever it is. 
the empires of today have their own ways of demanding compliance, and they have their own ways of burning us. But before I start on that, I think it's very important before I look at our application to recognize that this is not the only application. We're applying this to Cape Town. But you know, if, if we were in several of the countries whose prime ministers have just been in our country this week, we would have a very different application. We're in alliances with a group of people where the literal story of this is what believers, brothers and sisters in Jesus are holding on to all around the world, whether it's in Iran or Egypt or China, places in India, or Russia. We need to realize that more people today and in several of those countries and a few others are facing either persecution, exclusion, and or death for their faith in Jesus. And we're at a point in history where there are more people facing that than almost ever before. I was listening this week to the pastor of a large Chinese house church movement. It's hard to describe which is what there, but how last year, 2022, Chinese authorities destroyed their facilities, came in, got them fired from work. The members, you know, they put technology outside, took photographs, got all their information, confiscated homes even removed the children of church leaders from their parents last year. They read this story with an immediacy. It's very hard for us to understand. That pastor describes how the Sunday after the raid... He preached from Revelations 3, verse 7 and 8. To the angel at the church of Philadelphia write, These are the words of the one who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. It's like happening now. And that is an application. And when they read of the courage and defiance of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they trust God and they remain faithful without guarantees. 
Now, the danger of many Western sermons on this passage then is we try to imagine what we would do if that was us. And we develop conspiracy theories about, you know, governments and they're going to come and they're going to take my kids and everything like that. When actually, that's probably one of the last things on the horizon that we should be worried about. And so I want to show us today what we should be worried about in the story of this statue. Because I don't want to generate an imagined emotional response to a crisis we are not facing. God does not give us grace for our fears. He gives us grace to take down our idols. God does not give us grace for our fears. He gives us grace to take down our idols. Don't worry about what you will do if that was you. If you were somewhere in China and they took your kids away, I have no idea what I would do. But I do know someone I can trust in the midst of whatever. But if I spend my energy going there, I'm going to miss something very important about where we are in Cape Town right now. So my first point is I want to show you Nebuchadnezzar's most reasonable demands. He makes this image of gold, you know, 30 meters high, 3 meters wide or so, and he sets it up in today, what is a modern suburb, and, um, and, uh, but it was on a plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then everyone gets told, nations, peoples, you, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the band play, fall down, worship the image of gold. If you don't, you're going to be thrown into a blazing furnace. Now, remember that the previous, you know, chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue and it had a head of gold. And who was that head of gold? It was Nebuchadnezzar. So he takes the description, actually sort of like a, a God-given position, and he, he chooses to take that which God gave him and make it everything. And so there's no longer a recognition of anyone else. He gets that whole 30 meters covered in gold. I mean, there wouldn't be, as the scholars point out, enough gold having been mined at that point in human history for that to be solid gold. So it was almost certainly a wooden structure or obelisk of some sort. But Nebuchadnezzar takes it upon himself to make a god out of his own sense of self. But he's, and then he demands that everyone else worship it. And he's very reasonable about it. He says, you only have to worship my self-invented self-image when the band plays. You don't have to do this all the time. It's just when, when the band plays, you must invent my self-invented self-image, which has a grain of truth from God somewhere in there. But bottom line is, I'm putting myself up for worship. Notice this very reasonable request. I'm not asking you to stop worshiping your God. I'm just asking you to add mine. A lot of stuff 
that's preached on this misses this point, by the way. Just acknowledge and worship my God. And you only have to do that when the band is jamming. So Nebuchadnezzar is completely furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they refuse to accept his right to make a God in his own image. What's wrong with you? Like, I can worship who I want to, and you need to acknowledge. When I make a God, you need to acknowledge. No, you need to do a little bit more than that, actually. When I make a God, you mustn't just acknowledge it. You must acknowledge I'm right. No, 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 you mustn't just do that. You must acknowledge I'm right, and you must worship what I worship. But you don't have to leave your gods. You just have to make room for mine. Does this sound familiar? Strangely familiar. You know, the danger we face today is not that people don't want God. The danger is that everyone demands the right to define God. And they're going to make him or her or it in their own image. And they may take a hint of truth. They may even take something that was once like inspired from God in the picture somewhere. But everyone demands the right to define God. We want to make a God in our self-image that we then insist other people must worship. We worship our self-image and get furious when the world doesn't do the same. You know, explore. I, I'm seriously hard-pressed in my everyday interactions and counseling and that kind of thing today to find an absolute atheist. I met one who told me that he was one earlier this year, and there was only one in the last couple of years, like a hardcore atheist, who, and, and, and his wife, who isn't a Christian, thinks he's much too fussy and dogmatic. Um, <laughs> so like hoping I'd soften him from, you know, not convert him to Christianity, but just get this stupid atheism. Like atheism is a shipwreck that lies wrecked on the reef of people's hunger for spirituality. But it's a particular kind of spirituality. Our culture wants a spirituality without cost and without ethics. As long as it doesn't cost me anything, in fact, you know, it boosts me. As long as it doesn't have to define my sense of right and wrong, I'll take all the spirituality you can give me. Just go to you know, exclusive books, and, and look under spirituality for the wide range, all the way from mindfulness to crystal balls and who knows what else. And spirituality is therefore defined as whatever meets my felt needs. Completely self-made, self-centered journey 
and the hunger for God. Like, how did we, how do we mess this? Like, like, it's all about me when we're talking about God. And our feelings have become the tools with which we make the idols. And so like Nebuchadnezzar, we have then set these up and then demanded that everyone else respect my truth. You know, Nebuchadnezzar's requirement is often portrayed by us preachers as requiring absolute allegiance. You may only worship my idol in my way, with my orchestra at my time, or you'll be thrown into the fire. That's not what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar just wants them to add. Even, even chapter 6 with Darius, you know, the Mede, when he comes along and he says, you can't pray to anyone else. It's only for 30 days. Just long enough to establish a habit of idolatry and unfaithfulness to God. But he's, he's not imagining that he's going to change everyone's religion permanently. He's just trying to, you know, it, it's, these are not absolute demands. They're most reasonable when you worship yourself. They're most reasonable when you worship yourself. What's this got to do with Cape Town? What's this what got to do with the curriculum in our schools? You know, what makes the belief in one true God so profoundly unreasonable to a world is that it's defined by either polytheism as it was in this day or pluralism as it is in our day. So two big words. Polytheism versus uh, pluralism. Polytheism is the belief that there are many gods and some of them are gods we didn't even know. Nevertheless, these gods have an important influence, need to be kept in mind, and often they need to be appeased and kept happy. So, for example, when drought or famine or sickness or plague hit, ancient polytheists felt obligated, as, for example, in Athens in Paul's day, where there were lots of clever people and philosophers, but they still had an altar to the unknown god. Because in a polytheist world, you're never sure you've got all of them. And you're never sure you've covered all your bases and you're not sure who's to blame. And so you build these altars to things you don't know. Because there are many gods. Now today we have something more nuanced in the argument around us and it's called pluralism. Um, it's promoted as a necessary attitude. Or a policy to help us navigate diversity. Now, diversity is very good. It's a biblical idea. Every language, tribe, nation, remember Pentecost and all the joy of diversity. And we are told that pluralism is how you navigate this good idea. Remember, this thing's the distortion of something God-given. This good idea of diversity then gets controlled by this narrative of pluralism. 
And pluralism is fundamentally the belief that world religions are true, all of them. They're equally valid, and, in, and they're valid in their communication of truth about God, truth about the world, truth about salvation, for example. Pluralism offers us this promise, I'll help you navigate your diversity. I want to promise you and show you this morning why that's a lie. And I want the idol to fall. Pluralism appears considerate of others. It appears humble. But pluralism is the dogmatic belief that everyone else is wrong about being right. And that only pluralists know the truth. So can I show you the underside of the idol that stands on the plain of Cape Town? This belief that's literally, have a conversation with your teenage kids. They're they, they, they arguing this to you like, don't be ridiculous. How can you insist there's only one way? Like, how arrogant can you be? It appears to be humble, considerate of others. Today, for every atheist I meet, I must meet two 500 pluralists. And sadly, some of us are bringing this into church because we're just so conditioned by the world around us that all beliefs are equally valid in the name of diversity and tolerance and to suggest otherwise is to be bigoted and intolerant. Now, what I want to do this morning is put a jack under this idea of pluralism. And I want to just lift it up a little bit so that you can see underneath the flashy, uh, polished silver car that's on top. And we're just going to jack this up a little bit. And we're going to look at it from underneath. You with me? Because I want to tell you, this is not just something that happened on the plains of Dura. This is a challenge that we're facing right now. It's not the challenge that the Chinese church is facing or the Iranian church is facing, you know, the Persian church is facing. It's a challenge we are facing. And they've got their own idols they have to avoid, but we better make sure that we deal with ours. You see, underneath pluralism is actually deep pride, hubris. And it says this. That all beliefs are equally valid. However, my belief about their beliefs means I am right and they are wrong. I know more than they do. So whether it's Hindu or Muslim or Hare Krishna or Christian or Jewish, they all write in their own way, which is to insist that their way is the way, but they're wrong. I know better. I know more. And therefore, all beliefs of others are equal, but mine are better. That's pluralism. You need to see the line of the argument. All beliefs are equal. 
which means that some people are wrong, which means that I'm right and you're wrong. My beliefs, all beliefs are equal. Some beliefs, mine, are just more equal than others. Guys, this isn't just clever logic. This is the fundamental deception of our day, and I want to show you its consequences. You didn't think you were going to get this sermon when we came to do Daniel chapter 3, but it's really important. So let me tell you a little story. A couple of weeks ago, Cindy and our team, well, Cindy was part of a team that went out to Capricorn to Bernadette's church, and part of the day they were doing was an art sozo. And Cindy told me that at her table, there was a, a gogo there, and she had a four-year-old grandson who was also part of the art sozo. Now, at an art sozo, they put the palette down, and there's all the little colors that come, and then you have to mix colors to get the kind of end result that you want. However, this little fellow uh, decided that he would kind of lean in and just mix all the paints. And so quite soon into the exercise, instead of having yellow and green and blue and red and white and black, da -da -da -da, there was this gray mush in the middle of their tray. And Cindy tactfully got up and went out and got another nice little tray and put it down again. And soon afterwards, guess what had happened? All these beautiful colors were just treated equally. You know, good art does mix paints. Deliberately, delicately, beautifully. To create incredible effects, whether it's surreal or meticulous realism. But what is needed for that good art is access to the individual colors. You can't just mush them all together and then say, now that's art. Pluralism takes your idea, your idea, your idea, your idea, your idea, and says, I'm happy for you, that's your art. But I'll keep my colors, thank you very much. My idea, all ideas are equal, but my ideas are better than yours. I know the truth. The sad thing is that pluralism makes that statement again and again and again. It's being made in our schools and it's being made in a dozen different places in the name of tolerance, in, the na in our universities, in our workplaces, in our policies, in the name of something profoundly good, which is our diversity. But it gives us a great big gray blob, and it says, okay, this is all you're allowed to use. So pluralism has blurred some very important biblical ideas. And mixed that with Western philosophy. So good Biblical ideas like mutual respect and diversity and freedom of conscience are blurred with very questionable constructs of individualism and relativism. And it gives us a world in which we are told that we must find a version of our truth, not the truth. You build your own idol. Here's the how-to kit. 
ironically, this has seen the collapse of tolerance and respect. It doesn't work. You see, if everyone's at the center of creating their own world of truth, all you have is lies. <laughs> and if everyone is at the center of deciding that everybody else is wrong, then it just becomes a shouting match. We see this in the cancel culture of social media, in which an exchange of ideas results in little more than like someone throwing petrol into a dumpster. You know, one of those big metal, throwing petrol into a dumpster full of rubbish and setting it alight. And we calling that debate or enlightenment. All it is is rubbish on fire. Absolute garbage. Allowing every chance uh, influences status. A day in the sun or a night of infamacy, depending on how you happen to score on the platform. The problem with pluralism is this. A world in which everyone is right quickly degenerates into a world in which I'm never wrong. You get that? A world in which everyone is right quickly degenerates into a world in which I insist, like Nebuchadnezzar, I'm never wrong. What I make, you better worship. What I make, you better serve. What I decide is binding on you. Tell me that's not happening on your social media. In the name of tolerance, pluralism, a distorted interpretation of how to handle the gift of diversity. A world in which everyone is right degenerates into a world in which I'm never wrong. How do we do community from there? This is my prayer. Oh God, to find again honest, courageous humility that's brave enough to defy the self-made lies. Honest, courageous humility, brave enough to defy self-made lies. But oh wait, there it is. Standing on the plains of Dura, not just an idol, but as everyone else bows down, humbly, courageously, without making a scene. We don't know where Daniel was. He certainly wasn't bowing down. Probably on a diplomatic mission or something. But there stands three young men, unapologetic. Everyone else bowing to the insanity that leads to fury and fire. They don't protest. They don't appeal. They don't contend. They don't blame. They don't shame. They simply stand. They have compared Nebuchadnezzar's self-made God with the God of their father and the God of their mother, the God who revealed himself as creator and savior. And they have concluded, O king, your majesty, 
We do not need to defend ourselves. We're just going to stand. We're not going to bow. We're not threatened. We're not angry. We're not going to try and take you down. You're in much bigger hands than ours. We'll see that in the next chapter. But they believe Genesis 1 verse 1. And when you get that verse, you, a whole lot of uh, the rest of the Bible makes sense. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. And a little bit later, he made us. We don't make God. God made everything that there is. And we don't have the ability to define or choose or decide who he is. We simply have to have the humility to receive the revelation he has given. They trusted the God of Isaiah. Who is this? Robed in splendor. Riding forth in the greatness of his strength. Remember he's prophesied the suffering servant in Isaiah. 53, now we're in 63, he says. The Lord says, it's me. I proclaim your victory. And I am mighty to save. I am mighty to save. This creator God is the savior God. And he's made himself known. And when they look, they realize no one compares. I don't need to bow down. I don't need to worry about the self-made gods of others. And I can, in fact, take an axe and chop my own down, like Gideon did. So, guys, this story is not a Disney movie. What do I mean by that? Where we all learn to stand up for what we believe in. If that's your takeaway, then I'm guaranteeing you, you've missed the point of this passage. The world is all telling us, you're oh, great. Stand up for what you believe in. Stand up for what you believe in. Oh, as long as it blows your hair back, and if you're bald, I don't know what you're going to do. But stand up for what you believe in. You know, stand up for what you believe in. That is not the point of the story. Critique what you believe in. Critique what you're going to stand up for. And humbly, if you're standing for the wrong things, then change your God. The pluralist application is everyone stands up for what we believe in. That would be telling us what our itching ears want to hear. There's a much better way to deal with diversity. It's actually written into our church constitution. It's called freedom of conscience. You know what made Nebuchadnezzar so furious was that not that they were standing and having courage. I mean, he was a warrior and an emperor. He, he would have admired courage made him so furious as they were questioning his sense of self. I am this, and they refused to bow to what he made of himself. You are not bound by other people's definition of themselves. You are bound by the truth. That's it. 
Now, there's a way to handle this in these guides, and we'll see this next week. Take us through this with incredible wisdom, humility, courage, and grace. They don't insult the king. They, they simply stand and speak with such wisdom. You see, freedom of con uh, conscience that permits diversity is not the belief that everyone is right. It's not. Freedom of conscience defends the right of others to be wrong. But it also defends your right to say so. You don't have to believe everyone is right. We handle diversity with love and courage and humility and the freedom for others to do the same to us. Jesus said, do unto others before they, no, sorry, as you would have them do unto you. And this will take us into humility, courage, deep grace, and faith. You know, when you think about the early church and how they were accelerated by God when Jesus activated the kingdom, they were preaching a message that said, repent. They weren't wandering around telling everybody, you know, you're right. You really are right. You, you, you just need a bit more self-confidence to stand up for what you believe. You, you're right. You're right. You're Their first word was repent. God has sent a Messiah. He sent a king. And we don't have to bow before the idols of this world because we have a king. Let's pray together.